For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neve Hill and civil rights attorney Ryan Kiesel. Supporters of an initiative petitioned to allow for abortion access in the state pulled it on the day they were supposed to start gathering signatures. As a constitutional amendment, State Question 828 would have required nearly 173,000 signatures over 90 days to go before a vote of the people. Ryan, what happened here? Well, I think that there was a reckoning with reality, uh, and you know, and, and and kudos for the folks that were were that were pushing this, and they they recognized that they needed to take a step back because a lot of times ego will get in the way, and you just plow forward with a deal like this, and you don't get the signatures, and you fall by the wayside, and then there's some sense that well, wait a second, Oklahomans didn't you know show up to sign this. Maybe Oklahomans really don't want. <clears throat> to put reproductive rights protections in the state constitution. So I think that, you know, good for them to recognize that they needed to take a step back. Collecting that many signatures is an enormous undertaking. It costs a lot of money. You have to have a, an army of either volunteers, but more than likely paid staff that are going around the state uh, at events, collecting signatures. And then you have to verify those signatures internally because you want to know basically how many you're turning in with the Secretary of State's office, whether you're going to be successful or not. And, you know, if you need to ramp up there at the end, whatever that looks like, um, so I, I don't think that this is the last that we're going to see of reproductive rights ballot measures uh, that Oklahomans were going to get to you know, consider signing and then potentially voting on the next couple of years. Uh, that was indicated in the article, um, you know, whether this you know something that you know, Planned Parenthood of Great Plains or other organizations in state uh, may begin to step up to the plate. But it's going to take a pretty big funding effort, even for something that I think uh, will ultimately be very popular with a lot of Oklahomans, including Republican Oklahomans uh, and independent Oklahomans. We saw in a poll you know, beginning at, at the, uh, I think, midpoint of this last legislative session, where even uh, the the extreme abortion bans that we have in Oklahoma, they weren't even popular with the majority of Republican voters. I think that there is kind of this, this sense of, you know, common sense that's going to come around with reproductive rights in Oklahoma. And I, I hope to see that kind of play out in a ballot measure at some point. Neva. Well, I think you're right. Maybe at some point. But the folks did understand, I think, what you're saying, Ryan. I mean, it's not uh, the 175,000-plus or whatever number. It's really a quarter of a million or mm-hmm. some yeah, number or to, better. Some, to or better to be able to uh, withstand all of the challenges. And the fact that they did recognize that you've got to organize, you've got to have the resources, the money, the people, and that you've got to have all of the stakeholders in their instance at the table. And it appeared that while they got the ball rolling, they didn't necessarily have all of the players that would be uh, central to having this really uh, be a and an, be a state question ultimately that uh, could be a real battle and one that they might be competitive on. And you know, you point to these successful ballot measures uh, that have created these constitutional. Uh, rights for abortion in states like California and Michigan and Vermont, that's not Oklahoma. So I think it's uh, a campaign that uh, will have to be well-crafted and uh, we'll see a lot of opposition. I mean, there are folks, depending on the styling of the uh, language and what they really try to do and how far they try to go on this, it will be an interesting question to see how that uh, moves forward. And also, Uh, kind of uh, side by side with that, what we see during the legislative session in terms of any efforts uh, either direction on abortion questions. Yeah, I think a a better parallel for Oklahoma's experience is what happened in Kansas. You know, right right after uh, the Supreme Court struck down Mm -hmm. Roe v. Wade, there was a a ballot question there. Now, of course, what that ballot question was, was to put restrictions in the state constitution, and the people of Kansas rejected it pretty overwhelmingly. And I, I think that, you know, we can see that 
happening in Oklahoma as well. And it'll be interesting also to see what happens during the legislative session because Governor Stitt during the campaign seemed to back off a little of his absolutist policies around abortion. And I think that, you know, that was in large part because polling was probably suggesting that Oklahomans don't want total bans. Uh, and at the debate with Governor or with Joy Hoffmeister, the governor said uh, that he would entertain legislation that would create exceptions for, uh, I think, you know, rape, incest, uh, maybe even life of the mother. I can't remember uh, precisely, but you'll, you see a little bit of softening there, even with Governor Stitt. Whether the legislature gives him legislation to sign on that is another matter. A federal judge rules against Oklahoma in releasing a prisoner for the state to execute. The judge denied the request for John Hansen to be transferred from federal custody and dismissed the case for lack of jurisdiction. Neva, outgoing Attorney General John O'Connor was not happy about this. He wasn't, and I think, you know, when you look at this, I mean, Oklahoma had sued the uh, Federal Bureau of Prisons back in October, um, and, and basically what they were saying is that they wanted this transfer to take place. And you have the judge basically rejecting the argument and saying that the Bureau of Prisons director had the broad discretion basically to decide whether or not a transfer request was going to be uh, denied or granted. And it was his determination on what was uh, what was of the public interest. So uh, a fairly, um, a fairly in some people's minds, I think, might be overreaching in terms of what this uh, federal uh, judge in Texas did on Tuesday. But uh, it does it does set up for you know, the continued debate, the continued fight. And we've seen uh, with the U.S. Justice Department during the uh, during the years here of the Biden administration that uh, they've halted federal executions. They did that last year. They're certainly, um, they're certainly going to be, with respect to Oklahoma, a very strong difference of opinion uh, on what uh, should take place and how the state should be able to make these uh, uh, make these executions happen if, in fact, they've gone through the full process. So um, I think it's a real battle. Um, and I don't think Oklahoma's unique to the battle. I think other states are in the same situation. This is just one that uh, popped up this week because of what happened mm-hmm. uh, with this particular ruling. Well, yeah, you know, I think it's important to point out that uh, the the inmate John Fitzgerald Hansen, uh, you know, he is. It's, it wasn't a matter of him being transferred to Oklahoma to be executed or you know staying in federal custody and then being released. I mean, he was uh, sentenced by the federal government to life in prison plus 107 years. Uh, that was for a series of armed robberies. He was sentenced in Oklahoma to death for the killing of uh, Mary Bowles uh, and Gerald Thurman, uh, uh, the mar- the murders of Mar- Mary Bowles and Gerald Thurman. Um, so that, I mean, that's, I mean, you know, two different cases, you know, two different sentences. So it's not a matter of, you know, whether Hansen's getting released anytime soon. I mean, he's likely going to stay in federal prison until he dies at this point. Um, and you know, the federal court's ruling here wasn't a question of whether, you know, the state, uh, had a good case or not. It was that this is the discretion of the Bureau of Prisons. The director has wide discretion to decide whether or not it's in the public interest to release that inmate. You know, the, the uh, um, you know, maybe just under the surface here is this question of a federal moratorium on executions. You know, the, the Bureau of Prisons didn't mention that. Uh, you know, the Biden administration hasn't talked about that. Uh, A.G. Merrick Garland hasn't talked about, you know, whether or not this is a, uh, a response to the, the federal moratorium on, on uh, executions in the United States. But that's been in place essentially since uh, President Biden took office. Um, and so, you know, whether or not that's at play here, it does seem to you know, kind of follow through with the federal government's uh, policy right now of not executing inmates. 
Oklahoma City's embattled Western Heights School saw some changes this past week. The district's board severed ties with its suspended superintendent, Mannix Barnes, after his two-year tenure plunged the school into turmoil. Also, Governor Stitt appointed a parent to replace the board's president, who abruptly quit last month along with two other members. Ryan, what do you think about this development? Oh my, where to start? I mean, this <laughs> the, the saga of Western Heights, you know, uh. God bless the parents and the students out there uh, and that entire community. They've, they've been through a lot in the last few years. And you know, if you're a parent and you've got a kid in public schools, uh, and that's the school that your that your kids are uh, allotted to go to, and this is really tough stuff. I mean, this you know you see all these larger than life personalities kind of playing out here, with, whether it's you know former Superintendent Barnes, you know the attorney in the matter, Jerry Conklazier, and but what it ultimately comes down to is you had this school that was you know shut down by the State Department of Education. The state took it over. Uh, they suspended Mannix Barnes, the former superintendent, or now former superintendent. And then you began to come to light all of these different shenanigans behind the scenes where, you know, Mannix Barnes had negotiated, or I don't know if he negotiated or not, but just got a sweetheart deal, a contract extension, even whenever he wasn't due for a contract extension, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars of payout if he's fired. And he's still receiving, uh, is it correct, $150,000 150, right. uh, to basically walk away from the situation, you know, walk away money. Plus that's, a that's pretty incredible. $75,000 bonus. Yeah, $75,000 bonus for getting suspended. Um, some of the parents, they're, they're excited about this, of course. Um, I think that the, uh, the incoming superintendent, uh, the report even said that she was in tears at the end as she was talking to reporters. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that, that, that is a, it is a really exciting moment for the school. There were some complaints, uh, and I think legitimately so. And I wonder if the governor even realized that this is what they were doing. But when they selected a replacement, because they needed three people on that board to have a quorum, it's a five-person board, but they needed three people on there, and they were down to two, so the governor had to appoint. The governor appointed somebody uh, for the longest vacant term, meaning that for now two years, I think this individual will serve in that role, which, you know, they may be fantastic, but I'm sure that the community there would have rather had voted on uh, who was going to represent them in these coming elections in the coming months, uh, rather than have somebody that's going to be appointed that will serve for a couple of years. So, you know, this, that may have just been an oversight from the governor's office and trying to get somebody in, you know, get a, get a warm body in a chair so that they had quorum. Um, and, uh, but who knows? I, I think that regardless of that, uh, this is a, a, a great turning point for the school. And, you know, hopefully they can begin to put this whole episode behind them. Neva? It, it has been a mess. I mean, uh, it's been, uh, I think at one point uh, you've had words used like it's been a cancer, it's been a scourge, mm. it's been everything. And when you think about it, I mean, this this uh, in this instance, you had a superintendent who's been suspended for over a year. And now he agrees to resign December 31st. But not only does he agree to resign, he receives this $150,000 payment and a $75,000 bonus on top of that. He'd been receiving a $220,000, I believe it was, $220,000 a year salary as the Western Heights superintendent. Mm-hmm. This battle's gone on for two years with with uh, all of the folks, uh, the patrons, uh, the uh, employees, everyone, I mean, wanting this change. And yet then you had uh, Western Heights uh, suing, going through this litigation, $300,000 to the long- $350,000. Yeah, and 300 yeah. of that going to the uh, the longtime attorney who is also now resigned, yep. uh, who had been, I think, with the, with the school district for- uh, 20 or 30 years. Mm-hmm. I mean, long, long time. But you look at this mess, 
and look at what's really happened. Forget the, forget the conversation about the money and the guy leaving. He, he is giving up his superintendent certificate, so he won't be a superintendent again in the state of Oklahoma. I mean, uh, but you had a school district that produced the worst, some of the worst academic results in the state, and it was the last district in the state to return to full-time uh, to full-time school uh, after uh, COVID. And so it's it's been a mess. They've lost hundreds of students. I think I read at one point that there were 37 or 40 percent of the employees had left. I mean, it's, it's a school district that's been decimated. And now uh, the good news is there is an effort and there are folks now coming into place that um, have clearly a vision and a mission to try to change that and try to correct all of all of the uh, two years plus of the problems that have been ongoing. But it will take a long time in the aftermath of this. And I think uh, you have to applaud people that uh, come on the school board and in this kind of circumstance, the people that have stayed on, I think the new president is the longest uh, longest standing school board member uh, that has been on the board continuing. So there will be some continuity from that standpoint. But this really points to something that we talk about oftentimes with school boards in general. I mean, the fact that how critical it is that you have folks in place that are not just rubber stamps, that are not just showing up to, to have a meeting because it's required, but are really paying attention and making a superintendent accountable uh, and knowing what's going on in that in, in those respective school districts. So I think it's a lesson not only that the Western Heights folks are, uh, take, have taken to heart, but something that uh, everyone in all of the schools need to take a look at as well. And important to point out, the State Department of Education, they didn't step into this uh, for some willy-nilly reason. I mean, they walked into this because Mannix Barnes was failing that school. I mean, the, the failures that you mentioned, Neva, started even before the State Department stepped in. And, mm-hmm. you know, rather than, and which is, which is so wild that, you know, that you have the State Department then step in, and then the school board uh, you know, signs a, a contract with him that gives him this enormous, you know, 100000 plus payout and potentially over a $750,000 payout. And then we're continuing to vote to pay the bills of this law firm, you know, total $350,000, $300,000 to this one firm to fight the State Department of Education when they could have just said, you know what, our superintendent wasn't doing their job. Let's try to right this ship, but instead they just dug their heels in. You know, I, I love local control of public schools, but at some point, whenever you have a, a catastrophic failure uh, like you had in Western Heights, there's really no other recourse but for the state to step in. And, and you had the auditor, auditor and inspector's office all the way back to 2020, 2021, I mean, had already been investigating right. and found serious deficiencies. And so you would have to suspect that uh, these ki- kind of uh, investigations on the financial side of the district may continue, I mean, in the aftermath of this, because there are a lot of questions still swirling around out there uh, about uh, about the money, about the budget, and how that's all going to look going forward. Governor Stitt is banning TikTok from state-issued devices. The executive order cites security concerns as it forbids the social media app on computers, cell phones, and other devices. Neva, what are the concerns here? Well, I mean, I think I think they're serious concerns, and I think they're concerns that uh, you have the FBI director talking about. You have uh, already other. Uh, uh, the U.S. military, the uh, TSA, the Federal Communications Commission, I mean, all of these folks weighing in on this, and it's an ongoing conversation about the fact that 
In this instance, it's about cybersecurity of state government. In the instance of this executive order, um, this social media platform, you, we have 100, uh, I think it's 135, 150 million users in the United States, but there are a billion people globally on TikTok. And, you know, what people sometimes are not aware of is the fact that, that this is a Chinese company, and according to the Chinese government, uh, according to the Chinese national security laws, they're compelled as a company to share their data that they get with uh, the government uh, upon request. And so it does become something that I think from a, again, from a, a security standpoint, cybersecurity standpoint, something that uh, everyone is having to take a serious look at. There have been bipartisan uh, coalitions of uh, members of the United States Senate and others that have come together that have kind of uh, uh, sounded the alarm on this and tried to up the conversation. There have been uh, conversations between our government and and uh, 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 the Chinese and to no avail on on this matter of cybersecurity. So I think uh, I think putting these things in place. I mean, we're seeing it as I say this blacklist. Uh, uh, kind of approach with an executive order is something that uh, is not unique to Oklahoma. It's going going on across the country, and I think we'll see more and more of this as they continue to see the problems that are uh, being unraveled, and 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 we uh, come to some conclusion on how we're going to deal with this long term. Right. Well, yeah. You know, Wednesday night uh, this week, the United States Senate, with unanimous consent, uh, did basically the same thing that we see happening in Oklahoma with the federal government. Uh, and you know whether that gets a vote in the House and, and what ultimately happens when it hits Joe Biden's desk, I don't know. But I mean, you, you're beginning to see this. You see this, and I think you know, 13 other states right now are, uh, have either executive orders or legislation addressing the issue of TikTok and national security concerns. Uh, I don't think that it's trivial uh, to be worried about this at all. Uh, you know, and frankly, you know, we should be asking, you know, what's the back end infrastructure of a lot of the technology that we use? How could it potentially be used against us? Um, and we, we've we've only begun to see the tip of the iceberg of that as a society, uh, as you know, how we can begin to see ourselves, you know, manipulated uh, even even without knowing it. And, and even sometimes when we do know it, we become so addicted to these things that it doesn't matter. You know, that you're that you're willing to sacrifice. Uh, some security, an enormous amount of privacy, all for the sake of you know convenience and the ability to continue to use this thing that you've you know, come to uh, rely on. You know, it's you know I I mean with my phone I, I don't use TikTok, but you know with Twitter I'm gonna you know, pull up Twitter because I just want to you know you're just on it. Uh, you know everybody's you know, wringing their hands over Elon Musk. I don't like <laughs> Elon Musk, but you know. Yeah, people are still on the platform, and it's because we're, we're kind of addicted to it. And that's you know that's a that's an interesting thing as a society that we're going to have to wrestle with. It's not just TikTok. We've seen the United States government deal with other uh, Chinese technology, you know, in particular cell phone communications. Uh, and you know, what does that mean in terms of the ability to capture cell phone information, location information of, of Americans, any number of things? You know, data is powerful, and it's and it's it's not just powerful. It's worth a lot. You know, there are an entire there are entire companies, uh, global companies that are built around collecting data and then selling data. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's we we got to be very careful about that. It is yeah, of course we can't do anything like this without like you know trying to have some partisan rhetoric to it. Neva, I'm I'm kind of surprised you, you did I don't know that I heard you say communist at all. I mean, every one of these press releases that I've seen is you know communist Chinese. Uh, we're supposed to say that. Um, but 
you know, I think in seriousness that, you know, this is something that one of the things that I wanted to point out was um, it, it will be, um, I don't know how this is going to be applied, but in the governor's executive order and governor Stitt's executive order, he says that all state owned networks. Well, if you look at state owned networks that have to be blacklisted from, I think that that probably includes one net, uh, which serves, you know, you know, 25 or so regional colleges and universities around the state of Oklahoma. Does that mean that a student at OU that's connected to OU Wi-Fi that tries to get on TikTok, are they going to be black, uh, blacklisted from using TikTok on that state server? I, or are they going to have to flip over to their cell communication uh, to figure out how to make that salad tonight? I think that's going to have to be made very clear and, and because it is about downloading and using the TikTok ap- application or visiting the tip. TikTok website mm-hmm. um, off of a government-issued device, and I think that's going to have to be uh, certainly clarified. And I think the other thing that uh, in this executive order that it talks about is that no person or entity that contracts with the state uh, shall, um, you know, be be involved in downloading or using the application or going on the website from a device, again, that is a government network, I think was the description, or something that is a state-owned or state-leased equipment. That opens a broad, uh, expansive list of potential uh, uh, pieces of equipment that will come into play on this. So I think I think we'll see a lot more attention on this uh, as we get into the uh, early next year and a lot more conversation because people will want to be very clear on what uh, this executive order fully uh, extends to and what the rules are going to be on the ban. And if this executive order is so important, why not go through the legislative process so we can start, we can have debates about it instead of just an executive order that seems, it can be used, seem bipartisan in ways. And and I think, uh, I, I, again, I think the legislature will have the prerogative, just like the uh, executive branch with the governor had the prerogative to issue the executive order. I think this will be part of a, lo- a larger conversation. And we're always going to have that give and, give and take between the, the branches of uh, government on who should do what when. But in this instance, it's not unique. I think it's important to say it is something that is being uh, talked about across the country, across state government, federal government at all levels. And if you're a lobbyist for TikTok right now, I, I was thinking you know, that there's somebody at, uh, at Capitol Hill, at the federal government right now, when the United States Senate passes unanimous motion uh, to shut your client down in the United States of America, and it was unanimous. There's some lobbyist out there that you know might not have a job today. Uh, and you know what's going to happen in these various states? I mean, if the legislature in Oklahoma picks this up, is there going to be a serious lobbying effort there? I think that maybe the more important lobbying effort will be from civil rights and civil liberties organizations that want to say we need to make sure that when we're balancing national security interest, we balance those against uh, free speech and the ability to to communicate. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, how do we how do we strike that balance and um, that's probably the, the lobbying pushback you see. I don't think you're going to see TikTok lobbyists out yeah. knocking on and, Oklahoma And a different conversation doors. because you're talking about a foreign company. You're not right. talking about an American company. And so I think that changes the conversation, you know, tremendously just on that one point. Governor Sitt says a Mexican consulate will open in Oklahoma City next year. It will provide consular services and assistance to the growing Mexican community in the state and promote economic commercial, educational, cultural, tourism, and community affairs between Mexican entities and Oklahoma stakeholders. Ryan, why is this important to Oklahoma? Well, we have a a rapidly growing and already an existing uh, large Mexican-American population and Mexican immigrant population in the state of Oklahoma. And and they live in, you know, towns, you know, small and large across Oklahoma, uh, play vital roles in the community and economics uh, in the state of Oklahoma. And, um, you know, so the ability to have 
to, to be able to go and have uh, access to the consulate without having to drive hundreds of miles, uh, without, which is you know, very difficult, if not impossible for a lot of folks to be able to figure that out. But these, these are important centers of, uh, and I think that it's a recognition that both Oklahoma and in particular Oklahoma City uh, are becoming global cities and a global state. Um, and you know, we, we are not uh, a homogenous population. We are a very diverse state, you know, whether uh, our, our laws and our policies always reflect that or not is a, is a different question. But we are we're a very diverse state, an increasingly diverse state, uh, and the ability for all Oklahomans and everybody who lives here uh, to be able to exist here without having to rely on going to Texas or having to you know drive all you know all the way to to Kansas City or whatever that may be that's a big deal. Neva, absolutely. I mean, right now, <clears throat> folks here in in Oklahoma to get paperwork done or to deal with the Mexican consulate would have to go to either Arkansas or Kansas would be the two closest states. And the the opportunity next spring to have this right in Oklahoma, right in Oklahoma City, uh, I think is a is a big is a big deal. I mean, and certainly important not only in Oklahoma City. I mean, talk about the growing population. Oklahoma City alone, I think the number that the mayor has said is a hundred thousand uh, Mexican uh, Mexican Americans in our state, but specifically a hundred thousand in the metropolitan Oklahoma City area. So th- there is a need for services, and and as you say, Michael, I mean, it does promote the opportunity to have a a much stronger partnership that has economic benefits. Uh, Certainly has cultural and tourism benefits to the to the um, to the state as well as just uh, the um, uh, the ability to have a closer uh, relationship and community affairs with uh, not only the Oklahoma stakeholders but uh, these uh, uh, entities from Mexico itself. So I think that uh, it's something the governor went to Mexico last year, made the pitch. Um, you know, wanted uh, the state to be proactive in bringing a consulate to the state. And now I think with this announcement this week, uh, we're seeing that uh, quickly, uh, the stage being set for that to be a reality, I believe they said sometime uh, by the end of next spring. Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of KOSU, its staff, or management. Programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at donate.kosu.org. And This Week in Oklahoma Politics, we'll be taking a break over the holidays. We will return on January 6th. So both of you, happy holidays to you, and we'll see you next year. Yeah, thank you, and happy holidays to all our listeners, and happy new year. Absolutely. Merry Christmas. (laughs) 